Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Neil Phillips. We have a species special episode for you today, but before that, my recent wildlife highlights. I did go looking for the fallow deer rut somewhere local to me, but I didn't get much footage or see too much. When I finally did get in a good position, someone let their dog run right through the middle of the herd, so um, I just got really annoyed and gave up and went home. Earlier this week, I had a lovely time hanging around. There's a lovely clump of ivy that's absolutely smothered in insects. I know I mentioned it in the last podcast, but it's still going strong. A few hornets, loads of wasps, loads of drone flies and hoverflies and various other insects buzzing around. Really great to see, especially at a time of year when the insects are starting to wind down a bit. But I think all that's topped by the four, possibly five red kites that were flying around above my head. One of them quite low yesterday a site I would have had to go to Oxfordshire just a few years ago to experience, so amazing to see in Essex, my home county. And now on to some wildlife news. I'm going to skip past the government stuff because there should be another episode on that coming up, but we'll start with some raptor killing because there's always that in the news. A gamekeeper in Norfolk admitted to three counts of using poison bait, six counts of killing a common buzzard, one count of intentionally killing a northern goshawk, one count of possessing a regulated substance, one count of possessing four shotguns to kill Schedule 1 wild birds, one count of releasing 3,400 common pheasants into the wild, contrary to the new laws from the Wildlife and Countryside Act in 2021, and one count of incorrectly storing a biocidal product. And for all that, he got a 12-month community order, 200 hours of unpaid work, and a fine that was just over £1,000. What can you say? It's not much of a deterrent, is it? And just think of the poor police and RSPB investigation officers that spent all that time getting the case to court, and then the judge gives them a frankly pathetic sentence. In better news, £2 million has been spent creating a new channel of the River Thames in Oxfordshire at Chimney Meadows Nature Reserve. This channel will bypass a weir and will allow fish once again to move up and down the river freely, so they can breed and have more places to move if the water level drops or temperatures get too high. This work has created lots of pools and wet areas for wading birds and other species too. Sounds like a great project. Before we move on to the main topic, I just want to give out a massive thanks to all of you that have donated through our Buy Me A Coffee account. It really helps with the cost of the podcast. So a big thanks to Tweed Ecology, who also left a lovely comment. Excellent podcast. More of the outrage shown in your latest show, please, Neil. That's especially nice to hear because I was a bit worried that people would get upset with me uh, ranting somewhat in that new special episode, but I'm glad to hear at least one person approved. Thanks again for buying those multiple coffees. Roman also bought us multiple coffees and left a nice comment. A brilliant podcast production. Enthusiasm plus nerdiness with an occasional dash of outrage. Keep up the good work. I think that's a pretty good description of the podcast, to be fair. (laughs) We also had a couple of other coffees bought over the last few months, but it's only telling me their name is someone. So thank you to whoever you are. And a big thank you to Charlotte as well, who also bought us a coffee. But now let's get on with the main topic, which is the first of our two episodes this month, which are both celebrating Arachtober, highlighting our wonderful arachnids, which in this episode is the yellow-tailed scorpion. Probably not a creature you'd expect to have as a topic on a podcast in UK wildlife, but there is in fact one species living wild in self-supporting populations in southern England. The yellow-tailed scorpion, Euscorpius flavicordis, has been living in the UK for over a century. It's thought they arrived here by sneaking onto shipments of Italian masonry in the 1800s, but a friend of the show, Digby Rogers, has been researching this topic for a number of years, and he has evidence they've been here even longer. 
They're quite big for a British invertebrate. They grow up to 45 millimeters long and weigh between 0.3 and 1.1 grams, which makes it one of the largest arachnid species in the UK. The body and the claws are mostly a dark brown to black color. The coloration of the legs and tail are more of a yellowy color, which gives the scorpion its name. They have a relatively small tail for a scorpion and large powerful claws. The often quoted rule with scorpions is for those with the most dangerous venom have small weak pincers and a large stinging tail and are so more dangerous to us and other animals. So the small stinger of this species demonstrates that it has less powerful venom. In fact, descriptions of the sting by various authors include less than a pinprick or a bit like an ant's but nothing like as bad as a bee's. They are also described as unaggressive, which is my experience of the species too. As I've mentioned, scorpions belong to the group called the arachnids and so are related to spiders, harvestmen, mites, ticks and the less well-known pseudoscorpions, which are tiny little arthropods a few millimetres long and resemble a scorpion but without a tail. But that's a subject for another podcast. Like spiders, they have eight legs and a body divided into two main parts. A cephalothorax, which is basically the head and thorax combined, and it's where all the legs and claws are attached. The second body part is the abdomen, or mesoma to give it its technically correct name, which, unlike in spiders, is not only segmented, but of course has a tau at the end. This tau is made up of five segments, with a sixth segment on the end, which contains the sting. In spiders, they have eight legs and a pair of pedipalps at the front, which is like little boxing gloves, and are used for both sensing their surroundings, like a pair of antennae, and in the mouths they're used to hold sperm during mating. Through evolution, scorpions instead evolved pincers, or claws, whatever you want to call them, which instead are used to grab prey and females, but we'll come on to that in a minute. And like spiders, they breathe using book lungs. This is an air-filled cavity on the underside of the abdomen, with a small hole to the outside, and inside this cavity are lots of thin sheets protruding from the internal wall of the organ, resembling the pages of a book, hence the name. And this maximises the surface area and the amount of gas exchange that takes place. Like all scorpions, the yellow-tailed scorpion fluoresces under UV light. This glowing is caused by beta-carboline in the exoskeleton. Now there's been plenty of theories and research into why scorpions glow under UV light. One idea is this fluorescence could help with protecting scorpions from damaging UV rays from the sun, as it converts the UV light into harmless visible light. Another possibility is this glow from the UV light could attract moths and other insects that scorpions would then prey upon, although there are studies to show that insects avoid the glowing of scorpions. It may also be a way for scorpions to see each other, as their eyes see blue-green colours best, which happens to be the colours that they emit when they glow. But there is another theory which sounds a bit mad to start with, that it actually helps them to hide. They glow under moonlight, so if they try and tuck themselves into cracks and crevices, and any part of them is exposed, they will be able to see it glowing and adjust their position, something they would not be able to detect with their relatively poor eyesight alone. In one study, they overexposed the scorpions to UV light, so they stopped glowing. And these overexposed scorpions spent a lot more time out in the open than those that had not been overexposed, which spent most of their time under shelter. And there is one more possibility. That is that the glowing doesn't have any advantage or use, and simply is an unintended side effect of the exoskeleton's chemical makeup, but doesn't have a big enough impact on the animal 
to be evolved away through natural selection. Though personally I find that a little bit hard to believe. Surely it must have some function. In the UK, the largest colony of yellow-tailed scorpions is found on the dock wall of Sheerness on the Isle of Sheppey in North Kent, where the population is estimated to be 15,000. There are also records from Ongar Station and Colchester in Essex. There are also reports of colonies in East London and the former London dockyards. And there are reports from the docks of Harwich, Tilbury, Southampton and Portsmouth, among others. But it's really hard to find much details on these, whether they really were there or they still persist. Whatever the case is with these, the colonies found in the UK are the most northerly in the whole world, which makes the yellow-tailed scorpion the hardiest of all scorpions. Yellow-tailed scorpions are nocturnal, emerging after it's got dark, with peak activity just after dusk, and the activity levels decline throughout the night, with all the scorpions returning to their crevices and burrows before dawn. Experiments have shown their activity is largely controlled by light intensity, becoming more active the lower the light levels are, as you would expect for a nocturnal animal. They spend their day in burrows, which at sheer nests would usually be holes or cracks in the wall. They seem to particularly like the deep gaps you get between the bricks where the masonry has all fallen out. Their activity is also affected by temperature and the time of year. They are much less active in winter, with the main time of activity starting in spring and continuing through summer to autumn, with warm summer nights being the best time to see them. Prey is whatever they can catch, really. Two-thirds of the recorded prey species at the Sheppey colony was the common rough woodlouse, Porcello scaber. But the second most popular prey item was other scorpions. They are cannibals. After that, spiders were the next most common prey, with the green-fanged tubeweb spider, Segestra florentina, another non-native colonist common on the dock wall, and the lace weaver spider, Amarobius similis, with the other prey species being made up of flies, caterpillars, earwigs and beetles. They don't have to eat often either, and can survive on as little as four meals a year. I need four meals in a day. They are ambush predators, hunting by coming to the entrance of their burrow and waiting, alert but not moving. They sense prey approaching by using their trichobophria, which are little hairs on their claws that sense vibrations in the air. When prey comes close enough, they use their claws to grab and immobilise it, but rarely use their sting. Prey is eaten head first, which they chew up with their chelicerae, which are their mouth parts between the claws. In spiders, these evolved into fangs, but here in scorpions, they are chewing mouth parts. And once they're finished eating, they retreat back into their burrow. On Sheppy, the main predator of scorpions were in fact other scorpions, with spiders being the only other predators. In fact, it's the two species I mentioned earlier. But in all the cases of predation by these spiders, they were juvenile instars, so only small, and only seven cases of them being eaten were recorded in the study I looked at. Yellow-tailed scorpions are territorial, and outside of the mating season, you will only ever find one scorpion in a crack in the wall. They don't come out their holes in the wall very often. This is especially true for the females, which in some cases leave their burrow as little as ten times a year. But the males will leave more often, especially in the breeding season when they're searching for females. The breeding season is August to October, mainly late August and early September, which is when the males become more active searching for females. When they encounter a female, she will often be pregnant or carrying young, and won't be interested in mating, and will repel any attempts he makes to court her. If this happens, he will guard the female. He will wait at the entrance of her burrow until the young have been born and have molted for the first time, and at this point the female becomes receptive. 
Males will stay with an unreceptive female as opposed to wandering off to try and find another mate that's more receptive. They don't seem to have any effective way of seeking out females, so once they find one, they stay with it. So instead he guards the female, fending off any interest from other males. But of course, if a bigger male comes along, he may end up being replaced. In fact, because of this, larger males are generally more successful when it comes to mating. And once the female is receptive, they begin courtship. He does this by holding her claws and tugs or pulls her towards him. During the courtship, he will usually sting her more than once, usually on the arm, for a lack of a better word, that the claws are on. He tugs and pauses, sometimes for a minute or up to an hour, and he will then carry out the male-led walk, where he passively walks her around. In other scorpion species, this is long, but not in the yellow-tailed scorpion. He only moves her around 1 to 3 centimetres, forwards, backwards or sideways, and for only 40 to 90 times. They then come out from the female's burrow and onto the wall. And the male continues with his courtship, but also introduces a few new moves, including the arm pull, where he tracks in and out his claws, and tail waving, where he waves his stinger over his body side to side. Then after a bit more tail waving and alternating arm pulling, the male deposits his sperm on the wall in a little capsule called the spermatophore. The male then bites onto the female with his mouth parts, holds her claws in his, and moves the female into position over the spermatophore, lining her up to take it into her body. He then starts doing push-ups, encouraging the female to do the same. Once he is sure the female is completely lined up with the spermatophore, he pulls her forward, which squeezes the sperm into her body to complete a successful mating. The male then releases the female, and she wanders off to find what's left of the spermatophore, and she eats it, not letting good protein go to waste. Overall, this courtship is much more simple than some of the more elaborate ones found in other scorpion species. But if a female does not have young, the male can be much more aggressive, just grabbing the female and stinging her multiple times. Unusually for scorpions, the males are often bigger than the females. And when one of these large males finds a female without young, the courtship is described as indistinguishable from a cannibalistic attack by one author. In fact, there are cases of the large males eating the females that are reluctant to mate, so effectively they have a choice of mate or be eaten. In the wild, females only mate once a year, though in a captive setting, one female did mate a second time. Once mated, the eggs are carried around by the female, hatching while they're still inside her, and she nourishes them much like mammals do. After about a year, they are born and they crawl onto their mother's back. She gives birth to between 11 and 51 young at a time, these young can make up to 44% of her total weight. They only give birth once a year, and it's usually in late August or early September. The young stay on her until the first molt, a stage known as the first instar. In this stage, they are all white and colourless, have no sting, and are completely defenceless, which is why they stay right under their mother's sting, where she can look after them. In an experiment, they separated the first instar juveniles from their mother, and 99% of them died. The mother can transfer moisture through her cuticle, so the young can stay fully hydrated. After about a week, they molt and leave the female. They continue to molt as they grow. The females do this six times to reach adulthood, but the males can do it up to seven, especially the larger males. So that's the full-on nerdy details on this species, perhaps one you didn't realise was in the UK. But it's been here well over a century, and is yet to spread. They don't currently seem to harm our native species, and are no threat to us of course. But as our climate warms, it may mean the nearby areas become more suitable and they may spread. And of course, any movement by humans, either on purpose or accidentally, may lead to new colonies forming in these warmer conditions. 
So who knows? Maybe soon scorpions will be appearing near you. On which note, I'll end the episode. Bye for now, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips and music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.